On GDC Podcast episode 22, we welcome Spelunky developer Derek Yu. We chat about the development and design of his fantastic Spelunky games, how indie game development has changed over the years, and how game development is an exploration of ideas. This episode was recorded live during GDC Showcase earlier this year and is brought to you by Agora, the real-time engagement platform for meaningful human connections. Back in a sec. So we have an extremely special guest today that we're excited to talk with. But first, hey, Alyssa. Hey, I'm just a regular. I'm not a special guest at all, but I am the news editor and associate publisher over at Gama Sutra and frequent co-host of this lovely little series we've got. Um, before we get to introducing our guests, though, I do want to tell everyone in the audience we are taking your wonderful questions um, from time to time. So if you do have some questions, uh, you'll notice in your little chat box there, there's a questions tab. Um, dropping those in there, best way to get them there. You can upvote anything that you want to see an answer to, and we'll keep an eye on that throughout the feed. So. That brings us to our guest. Our next guest is a winner of multiple independent game festival awards, including the Seamus McNally Grand Prize and Excellent in Design Awards. The developer of Aquaria, Spelunky, Spelunky, and Spelunky 2 was a key player in the freeware video game scene and instrumental in shaping what we think of now as an indie game dev. Let's welcome Derek Yu. Hello, Derek. Hi, thanks for having me. And thank you for that wonderful intro. That's a lot of Spelunky in there. A lot of Spelunky. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's really nice to be back at GDC, even virtually. I miss hanging out with everybody, and uh, I hope everyone is doing well out there. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And we miss we miss everybody too. Um, and I'm seeing all kinds of people in the live discussion right now. From oh, good day from Australia. Are you kidding me, Scott Bowser? So like we're from all over the world here, and it's awesome. Thanks for joining us. Um, so Derek, let's just get right let's get right down to this. Um, we're gonna go um way back well not way back not not all the way back but tell us a little bit about your background in game dev because some people you know only do know you from spelunky yeah uh i've spent a lot of my life getting to make games which you know i feel very fortunate about um you know started as a a kid just sketching on game designs on paper and then you know, when I was older, the I was part of the click and play scene. So that's where I think about, you know, my start as a game developer, because we were making games then, even as, as kids. And there was like this burgeoning, you know, online community of game developers. And even though we were making freeware and we were just sharing these games with each other, you know, it was game development. Like we were going through the whole rigmarole of... Uh, designing games, making them, putting them on the internet, marketing them to each other. Um, fast forward to college, and I released a game called Eternal Daughter, which was still yeah. freeware, made with the click and play series of uh, game making tools. But I, I think of that as like my first big game because it took a few years to make. It was a Metroidvania, it was a you know, pretty large scale game especially for for me at that age 
How old were you when you were making that game? So I started that at the very end of high school, thinking that I would finish it before we graduated. It was me and another one of my friends from high school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like with most games, there, it was delayed. And we kept working on it through college. And I think I released it uh, sophomore year of college, something like that. So it took a couple of years to, to finish. Okay. Um, and then after college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I actually spent the first year after college just working on a comic book. So nothing related to games. Oh, cool. I, I was not planning on having a career in game development at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, at that time, which is around like 2005, I had no idea about the indie game scene, like the phrase indie games just just not in my vocabulary. And um, I was still very much into games, interested in making them even, but it just didn't seem like the way I made games, which was by myself at home with like, you know, one or two other people was like a viable way to have a career in video games. And so it just so happened that, you know, after that first year, um, I moved to San Francisco. I was doing freelance illustration and just, yeah, not like entirely sure where, where I was going in life really. And I, I uh, came across the independent gaming source website uh-huh. and got introduced to this whole concept of indie games, which sounded a lot like what I was used to doing in the click and play community and just got really into it, you know, just became involved in the community, hung around TigSource, um, eventually took over TigSource when the founder, Jordan Magnuson, had to give it up for personal reasons. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, met met Alec online and we started working on Aquaria and, yeah. you know, so on and so forth. That's kind of how I got started as like a professional indie game developer. So yeah. it was, you know, I think a lot of just fortuitous events, things happening at the right time for me with like click and play, I think showing up at when I was a kid and interested in making games, but approaching games not as a programmer so much as like a a visual artist and and game designer. Um, And then TigSource and indie games kind of showing up in my life when I was sort of just floating around and, and looking for maybe subconsciously looking for a way into the game industry without really knowing how to get in. Like what, when did it click with you that like, Oh, I I think that I can uh, make a career out of this. You know, I think honestly, um, I mean, when we were working on Aquaria, we were trying to make a game that we would eventually sell. At that point I had learned enough about, indie games to realize that, oh yeah, there are people making indie games and also learning a lot. I was learning a lot about how you can actually, you know, the process of, of doing that, selling your games on your own website, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. And there were, you know, there were these different, this was like way before steam and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But there, there were ways where you could, you know, use these services to put like a widget on your web page and sell copies of of your game digitally um, that were, 
yeah, I just saw other people using them through through TIG source and sites like that. And so, you know, we we were making a real go of it, but I think when it really felt like viable was when we got nominated for awards at at IGF. And it was like that's when we we kind of had some validation from the outside world, I guess, that okay, like, you know, maybe, maybe we can there's like an audience for for this game that we're working on. Yeah. I guess coming out of that kind of like uh, indie dev Wild West, like before there was like Steam and all these platforms to get a game on, were there any kind of like smaller lessons you learned coming out of that kind of environment that have like really helped you uh, with your career thus far? I, I'd i say that even the work that I was doing in the click and play community as a young student was really helpful for what I'm doing now as a game developer. And Certainly the whole indie game scene and the game industry has changed a lot and has changed, you know, it changes very rapidly because this is still a very new art form. And it's, I think, an art form that has so much potential. Um, And so uh, it's just, it's changed so much and we've, we learned, you know, so much every, every year, but I, I think, you know, a lot of the basic fundamentals that I learned in the click and play community about just making a game and being able to talk about it with other people, um, I think have come in handy even now. I think a lot of it is just that what's been really fortunate for me is that I think I grew up with this idea that you just, you know, you make a game by any means possible and then you just put it out there and you and you start talking about it and i got used to at a very early age i think ta- making making games and then talking about them and then you know it feels very natural for me i think to just like reach out connect to people find communities where i can i can thrive you know i can feel like um pushed to improve my craft you know, across all the different things that you have to do as an indie game developer, which is not just the like physical creation of the game as an artist, as a programmer, but, you know, I think also as, as like a social person, a, a marketer, you have to wear all these different hats and there are all these different things that go into making a game. So I got a lot of practice doing that very early on and throughout my career, um, even when I was a hobbyist. And so I, I feel very fortunate for that. Do you feel like that, that mentality to, to make stuff, is that something that is innate in you? Um, or is that something that you picked up from the communities that you fell, fell into? I think a little bit of both. Um, I think I was always naturally just very drawn to the internet and as this place where you can, find people that are interested in the same things as you. It's just so exciting in that way. Um, but then at the same time, I think I've learned a lot just from the people that I've come across that I've, that I have met through the internet. And I think we've all pushed each other um, to improve and sort of be the best like indie game developers that we can be, you know, and that started in the click and play community. We're just a bunch of kids uh, yeah. making games back then. But I see now that, that, 
that kind of essence has uh, is still very important now to have. Yeah. Even as things change, even as things change in the landscape changes for indie game developers, I think they're kind of the fundamentals of being able to make games, finish them, and then reach out to people, you know, find finding your audience and finding the people that are going to be interested in your game and, and help you help you sell it, I guess, is uh, is really important. Yeah. I, I kind of have like somebody brought it up in in chat and the questions um, about like the scene. Like uh, and when we say scene, it's like, is that even really a thing? Um, and it's it's comparing, you know, uh, what you see happening today, the, the community, how do you compare it today versus back when you were first making these freeware games? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges now is it's harder to find like an insulated community to work in. Um, I mean, really the way I feel about it is that a lot of things have gotten easier for indie game developers, but, you know, in kind of like a, you know, to put it in, a video game term, I feel like the difficulty is sort of scaled with <laughs> the the power of indie game developers because you have so many tools and so many resources now. But at the same time, it I think expectations have really grown for you know what does an indie game even need to look like? Like what is the threshold for a quote unquote commercially viable indie game? And I think it is harder to get noticed these days too, just because of the volume of people that are working in the space. And so, um, oh yeah. And, you know, to go back to the, the community aspect, we're all now, we're now all on social media, which is kind of like connecting everybody at the same time, um, which is very different from when I was in the click and play community. And we were very insulated from the outside world and we were just kind of doing our own thing. And I think it all felt very manageable in that way because um, we we're all sort of at the same level of like student hobbyist then. And so I think it felt like an appropriate level of, of challenge and sort of goal setting for us then. And so we, we pushed each other, but there wasn't, I think, as much pressure as you feel now where I feel like if you talk to students now or, you know, not just students, but anybody who is interested in becoming an indie game developer or who is an indie game developer looking for success. I mean, you're now comparing yourself to um, like, you know, the most successful people in the industry and you're comparing yourself to double a or triple I or whatever you want to call it studios that I was going to say Derek, you um, also. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, people like me who have been doing this for a decade or more. Yeah. Right. And who got in very early mm -hmm. and found success in, in a different era where the challenges were different, you know? Mm -hmm. um, well, when you're talking about this, it, it, I can kind of tell that, you know, you're still releasing games and you probably feel that kind of pressure also that like everyone's mashed together, like uh, in this giant, you know, community uh, on social media. Do, do you feel that when you're making games or are you just kind of focused on your own, what's in front of you? 
I mean, I really try to focus on what's in front of me. And I think for the most part, I, I have been successful at that, but I definitely feel the pressure also. And I think, you know, where I'm at in my career, I think, you know, with each game that you release, especially if you had some success, I think there is pressure to make the next game that you release even more successful. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that does run a little bit counter sometimes to what I just want to do personally. Uh, Especially because I, after a big project, like a multiple year commercial release for me, I really, I really want to just go back to solo development. Like I feel that pull back to just working on games the way I did when I was, when I was a kid, when I was in the click and play community that, Mm -hmm. because there's just a real joy in, in solo development and, and experimentation, I think, um, in a way where you're insulated from the rest of the industry. Like I really miss that. And I think I, I always feel the, like a yearning to kind of go back to that. Mm -hmm. And then after I do that for a while, I get excited again to work on something bigger. And, and so for me, it's kind of the cycle of going like big and small, big and small uh, over and over again. But yeah, I mean, as far as like my commercial, my like big commercial releases go, I think there is a lot of pressure um, and that's certainly something I felt with Splunky too, where. Yeah. So somebody was asking about that. Did you, did you often feel any pressure to follow it up? Uh, and how, like, how did you deal with that, that pressure? I mean, Spel- Spelunky is an, is an amazing game in itself. And then making a sequel to a game that so many people consider like, uh, you know, perfect. If there's anything, you know, it's probably kind of hard. No to... pressure right now with how we're framing that question, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I know what people mean when they say perfect, and they don't mean like perfect, like absolutely flawless. I definitely I, don't. I, I don't know, Alyssa. What do you think? Alyssa's a huge I think when we uh, talked first about having you on the show, I like had in all caps, like, how do you make a sequel to a perfect game? But it, it is like the description of perfect I feel like you were about to give where like, Splunky as it was like the the older one and Splunky HD on through just feels like a complete package like every part of it contributes to it in the like the best way and it's just complete in what it is and then following that up with like new mechanics and everything has to be just like daunting in like the pitch process and the design process and like every step of the way like can you talk a bit about kind of like going from one game that a lot of people put that perfect label on to just kind of innovating off of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in some ways, you know, hearing that people felt that way about Spelunky 1 was freeing because I wasn't going back and doing anything with Spelunky 1. I was just making a new game. Um, and so if people didn't like the new one, you know, they, they always had the first game to, to go back to. Um, so, you know, for me, I just knew that there was more that I wanted to do with Spelunky and... I felt like in the like the landscape of roguelikes that that we saw develop after after Spelunky and also games like Binding of Isaac and FTL after you know the uh, after roguelikes kind of exploded and it became like this big genre. You know, there still weren't. I felt there still weren't like a ton of games that were quite like Spelunky, and so I was excited to to explore that further. And for me, I think I, 
I think about it as an exploration and I think it's really helped me to think about making games, even releasing like a commercial game as just part of exploring. I think for me personally, as an artist, just, just thinking of it as a continuous exploration, but also I think just for games as a, as a whole, I think as, as an art form, just thinking of it as something that kind of keeps going and going. Um, because I think, I think if you think of it, I think if you think of the game that you're working on as this, as this like, you know, discrete entity that you've got to get exactly right when you put it out. And that's like your only chance to, to do it. I think, I think it does feel like too much pressure. So it's weird because you do have to think about it like that in order to just finish it up. But I, I don't think of I don't think of it now anymore as like this is like a make or break thing, because I think it's really easy to think about it like that when you're working on a game like this is this is a, a going to make it or break it for me. I think even after having released like a bunch of games, definitely when you're like starting out, I think it's very easy to feel like, OK, this is my first commercial game. This is make it or break it for me. Right. I'm I've spent like a long time on it. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's got to come out and it's got to be this huge successor. It's got to be like this huge innovative thing that, that really like pushes game design forward or something like that. Um, but, you know, even having, having released several games, I still try to think about it. Like this is, this is an exploration and, you know, I do, I do want it to be a success, but, you know, now I think I have the experience to know that it will, it it has the highest chance of being a success. I think if I, if I make something that, that is interesting to me and I follow the processes that are interesting to me and the games that I've made before will, will always be there. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like if people, if people like enjoy Spelunky one, they can always, they can always have that. And you see that with every game series, right? Like, you know, everybody yeah. has their favorite. It's, it's not, always the latest game that comes out and also you know the thing i've also learned is just that people's feelings about games change over time and and with spelunky mm-hmm. one i definitely saw that it was a game that people's opinion about it changed a lot over time um because like, i think did, it's a, how did you see the opinion trending from when it first released to now well the like the the first um you know, like the Xbox version, I'll, I'll call it, uh, I'll call it Spelunky one. And, you know, the freeware version of Spelunky, I've been calling it Spelunky classic. So I already saw from Spelunky classic to Spelunky one, that there's a lot of expectation for Spelunky one when it came out. And I think it just, it wasn't exactly what people were expecting. And I think, um, I think, What's funny is, you know, I, I feel like some people were maybe expecting more to be different from Splunky Classic to Splunky One. And, and a lot of people were expecting more to be the same. And I think just in general, Splunky is, is kind of a challenging game to get into. Um, and so I think with all these different expectations at play and then Splunky sort of being like a, a, a challenging game, to play as well. I think it took time for 
people's opinion of it to kind of settle and this idea of it being quote unquote, like a perfect game. I, I definitely don't remember that being the case right out the gates um, overall. And so I think with Spelunky 2, I was already sort of experienced with, you know, in terms of what to expect with this, with this, the sequel, because I had already gone through people. Yeah. Like the transition from Spelunky classic to Spelunky one and the the, the transition from Spelunky one to Spelunky two Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, wasn't that different actually. Mm -hmm. That's interesting seeing the the reception because they, they did come out like eight years apart, like one and then two. And then that's funny. Just thinking about you saying it's like, Oh yeah, this is kind of what the reception was like initially. I remember when Spelunky one first came out and like, I didn't really know what to make of it. I didn't know what to make of it until maybe a year after it was out. And then like, yeah, uh, like my, my coworker, Mike Rose was just like, totally like into it and i'm like okay fine i'm gonna i'm gonna give it a real go horrible at it the first time came back like a year later and got to olmec and i'm like no it clicked i'm i'm great at this game now and the best there ever was um to touch on kind of what you were talking about with that spirit of exploration and then with expectations and just how different the games industry landscape is from like when splunky classic or splunky hd were released versus splunky 2 um do you find that it is easier or harder to embrace that kind of spirit of exploration you could talk about with your uh, game development process yeah i mean for me i think I'm in a position where I can, I can embrace that exploration feeling a little more when you're starting out. I, I think, I think you do have to sort of think maybe a little bit more in terms of, you know, how do I get my game out there? How do I get my people to play my game and, and, uh, and buy my game and things like that. Um, So as far as, you know, like, when I'm talking to new developers, I think I I'm I try to get them to think about the process of of making games and figure out how to make games efficiently. I think first and foremost. So you know I might not focus as much on that exploration element if I was talking to if I was talking to like a new developer now because it's really hard to just even get through one game project. And I think the expectations now versus when I was working on Spelunky Classic are are much higher for like a commercial game. I think if you are able, I, I feel like it's still very helpful to I think I think making even like a freeware game can still be very, very useful just to just to sort of get your get you know get your feet wet a little bit or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, is that an expression? No, no, I'm not so sure. It's close it to an expression. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, you know, just to see the whole process of making a game through. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, really, I think it depends on, on each person. I think, I think what's the same now is just that it really, it, it depends on your, on your situation and, and where you're, where you're at. And the more, I think it is very helpful to do to do exploration and to think about making games in this exploratory way but you, you know I think it's easier to do that when you have the room to do that right mm-hmm. like when I was 
doing a lot of my sort of early exploration and, and learning in games, I was fortunate in that I, I was, uh, you know, I did not, it was at a time when I didn't need to like make a living and stuff like that. So yeah, if you can still, if you can find that space for yourself, I think it's great. And, you know, I think it may involve sort of like cutting out the, the larger sort of indie game scene or, or industry so that you don't feel that, that overwhelming pressure to like, you know, make a huge breakout like indie game all the time. I think that's great advice for anyone who's doing anything creative. (laughs) Um, I'd love to go to some of the questions in chat. There's some great ones here. Um, this one got a lot of upvotes super fast, uh, from Andy Lee, Derek, what did you want to accomplish in Spelunky 2 that made it difficult to pull off in Game Maker and necessitated a change to a custom engine by Blitworks? There's a lot. I mean, Spelunky 2 is, you know, there's a lot going, I think technically it's, it's actually from a technical perspective, like the game is actually it's doing a lot all at once. There's a lot of simulation going on in Spelunky 2, um, especially because we have these two layers. And, you know, one thing that we don't do in Spelunky 2 is we don't, we don't like cut out, you know, everything that's going on outside of the visible screen. So, um, you know, I think people look at Spelunky and it's like this cute, 2d game and it seems simple but the fact is that there's a lot of you know fairly complex interactions going on on screen and off screen on two layers including liquid physics like every frame of the game and so uh you know it really is i think a fairly impressive piece of engineering on blitworks's part especially, you know, once we made it like an online experience. And so, yeah, definitely we couldn't do the, we couldn't do, I think all of these complex things, particularly stuff like the liquid physics simulation in game maker. Um, Well, these days, I don't know. I, you know, I don't, I don't know the limits of game maker now, but definitely when I was working in game maker 8.1 or whatever with uh, Spelunky classic, I think it would have been difficult. Given like, um, I guess how long between like how, Splunky 2 is a long time coming. I'll put it that way. Um, where were you in that process where you realized that you needed to kind of expand your tools horizon to accomplish what you wanted for the game? Oh, it was, yeah, it was before we even started working on the game. And it was why I reached out to Blit in the first place was because, you know, I knew that they were very experienced, very good engineers from all of their all the work that they had done porting other games and porting Spelunky to PS3. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, yeah, from the very start, I knew that, that I would need their help, uh, especially because I wanted to add online multiplayer, which mm-hmm. was a big request with Spelunky one. And yeah, I think, you know, for, for a lot of my games, um, it comes down to also not just like wanting to make the game itself, but 
sort of who is around me to to work with on the games. I think that's that's a really important aspect of making games is just who you make them with. Uh, and I think it's important to find people to work with that not only have the skill sets that you uh, require to, to help you make the game, but that you're also comfortable working with. So, you know, with, with Spunky Classic, I just made that mostly on my own with the help of uh, a few musicians. Mm-hmm. And then with Spelunky uh, 1, the, the opportunity came up to put it on, on Xbox and I had to kind of scramble to find someone to work with. And I was just fortunate that my friend Andy Hall was, was available and interested. With my current project, Spelunky 2 and UFO 50, those two games were partly designed around... Um, working with Blitworks and working with the uh, my friends who are on the UFO 50 team. Mm. So I think it's a, it's an important part of the game making process. And uh, I think for me, it, it influences the design a lot. Also, just who I'm working with, too. Um, oh, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. I'm going to follow up, actually, um, with that, you know, talk about collaboration. And this kind of goes into it. But we have a couple of questions um, where people are asking, you know, if they're an introvert or not so active on social media, um, uh, you know, how can, you know, how can someone, you know, with, uh, with that personality, uh, find success. Um, and also there's, uh, someone asking, Catherine says, do you have any tips for someone who doesn't find social element of game design as a thing that comes naturally? They're kind of sort of related. That's a great question. Um, so I, I definitely am an introvert myself actually. Um, and so, you know, there are different lev- levels of introversion. For me, I think one of the reasons why I love the internet so much was that I did enjoy interacting with people, but through like forums and chat rooms and blog posts and things like that. So, um, you know, if you're able to do that, I think you can do a lot just by, yeah, making posts, right? Tweeting about your work and chatting with people in less direct ways, like, you know, on, on forums and things like that, there, there's just less pressure to like have sort of like an ongoing, um, less urgency. discussion. I there's less urgency. That's so a great, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's the, the perfect way of, of putting it. Uh, and you can find other people who are also introverted, to work with too is the thing. And I, that is honestly one of the reasons why I enjoy working with Blitworks so much is because I think they also enjoy communicating in a similar way. And we mostly just use Slack and Google Docs to communicate. So we don't actually have very many Zoom meetings or you know, before it was Skype. We, we, we didn't do that very much. And actually there was one point where my wife asked me, uh, you know, do you think maybe Blit would like to have more meetings? And I was like, no, I don't think so. And, you know, part of me <laughs> was answered that way because I didn't want to have more. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, I don't think so. You know, I, think, I think they like it the way it is. And she was like, maybe you should ask them just to make sure that they're happy with <laughs> the, the whole situation of just kind of chatting through email and, and 
Slack. Yeah, I mean, Docs. if that's if that's working for you, I don't know. Like we all know what Zoom <laughs> yeah. fatigue is now as we sit here staring at each other, like uh, in in the camera. Yeah, I totally understand the feeling of how do I survive in this extrovert's world? Because I, I do mm. think that extroverted techniques tend to get, I mean, maybe not surprisingly, right? Pushed to the front, right? Mm-hmm. Those extroverts I, keep on pushing, <laughs> pushing it to the front. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, because that's, yeah, I think, I think it just, it, it makes sense, right? That's kind of extroversion is about sort of like putting yourself mm. out there, but there are ways to, there are ways to do it. There are ways to, to market yourself and to put yourself out there as an introvert. And I guess one thing I will say is that, you know what, I, maybe to successfully do it as an introvert, you have to, you're going to have to be uncomfortable some of the time. And some of the time I definitely am. Like I do things that are just not super comfortable for me because I honestly am most happy just sitting in front of my computer, just making games in, in relative silence, you know, with mm-hmm. like music or maybe Twitch on in the background. Um, but that's where I'm most comfortable and that's where I'm most happy. But to, to do the things I want to do, I've got to push myself a little bit out of my comfort zone. And I think the key is to just push yourself a little bit at a time and see, see what you're able to do. Well, I, I think for, for the folks who are asking that in, in chat, it's great that you're doing that and asking, you know, Derek, you, you know, out, out here, like his uh, opinion on, on that. So I think that's a, a good start. Um, yeah. And practice, yeah. you know, and don't hold yourself to the standards of people who are like, just seem very natural at, at it. You know, they either, they either it came naturally to them or they practiced. You can, you can do a lot just by you can do a lot with, you know, your discomfort just by going a step at a time and doing a little practice and just seeing how things go, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to take one more question from, from Chad is good and it's fun. And then we're going to take a, a quick break. What things do you find fascinating slash fun about how other developers have experimented with the roguelike genre? I think what's, I think we're seeing that it's just a really flexible framework, this whole roguelike thing, it, it can accommodate so many different types of games, basically any type of game, I feel like, because the, the basic tenets of roguelikes, which are, yeah, randomization, um, permanent death, I think this idea of there being consequences and loss, you know, you're not only losing your character, but you're losing this entire randomly generated world. Um, but then being able to kind of come back and try again, and this fresh feeling of where this fresh feeling where you're both learning how to play the game, but you're also sort of getting a new set of challenges thrown at you each time. It's it's very broad and it's very flexible and it can be applied in a lot of different ways. And I think that's what we've seen because right out the gate, we were not seeing tons of games like Spelunky. It was like Spelunky. And then it was like the binding of Isaac and FTL or the two kind of bigger roguelikes that I remember coming out right Mm -hmm. after Spelunky. And they're all three of those games are very different, like completely different genres. I think, fairly different philosophies. 
And we're just seeing that more and more and more, which I think is awesome. And I, I feel like it, yeah, really just, just, it shows the sort of expansiveness of the genre. And I think we're, um, you know, and I think we'll see it continue to get applied to different games at different, in different amounts. Also, it's not like your game has to be full on roguelike. I think you can take some of the, those basic concepts and, and apply them, you know, you could just sprinkle a little bit on, right. Sprinkle a little mm-hmm. bit of roguelike onto your, <laughs> onto your game. And that would be fine. You could take some of the philosophies of it, like the, uh, you know, like these, these, the feelings of, of losing something and those con- the consequences of your actions, you can take some of those ideas and apply them without necessarily even making your game randomized, you know? So I, it's cool. I feel, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel lucky that I, I, you know, it was something that I happened to be thinking about at the time when I was working on Spelunky and that it, it just so happened to be something that, that could be so broadly applicable to, other types of games and i I, I don't see i don't see any sign of it really like slowing down or it you know being some kind of bubble that's going to burst because i feel like the basic concepts are so fundamental and i think it's sort of you know i i always liken to rpg in the sense that every game can kind of have some rpg elements right these are very broad concepts of like leveling up and gaining experience they're they're kind of like very human just very human real life sort of ideas i think which is why they're they're successful thanks derek and we will be right back after this brief message from our sponsor games have evolved into virtual spaces where socializing with one another is inextricably linked to the core gameplay. But for many game developers who want to turn their online games into social platforms, whether on mobile, PC, console, or elsewhere, developing the social aspects of a game requires expertise that they may not have. That's where Agora can help. Agora is the leading platform providing real-time engagement APIs to game developers so they can embed voice, video, live streaming, text chat, and more into their games. Search Agora, A-G-O-R-A, on Gamasutra.com and check out our video interview with Sid Sharma, Senior Director of Developer Relations and Partner Engineering at Agora, to find out more. So, Derek, when I was internet stalking you and, and reading your personal website, um, you said that you are into designing uh, dense games that are full of surprises, and I'd love to hear what you mean by that. So, my studio name, Moss Mouth, is kind of related to that um, in that I really like moss, just the way it grows on things, the way it kind of grows in the cracks of stuff. And, you know, to me, that represents something that I really love about games, which is, which are these details. And I take a lot of inspiration from old arcade games. And I think I have been taking more and more inspiration as time goes on as being these very dense experiences full of surprises. 
mm-hmm. um, and trying to apply that in a modern way has been a big interest of mine. Um, and I think especially as indie game developers, that's something that we can be very good at exploring because I think there are a lot of these little details in experiences that that might get overlooked, you know, by by bigger studios. I think especially because the bigger studios have a lot of pressure to provide tons and tons of content, you know, um, making like these very large open world games and things like that, which are really cool, of course. But I think, you know, as indie game developers, we can take like smaller sections of that and really explore them very deeply and get, you know, put a lot of, a lot of uh, detail into maybe smaller, smaller spaces. Um, you know, and it, for me, it's kind of this idea of like in the Spelunky games, it was, it's very important to me that every, everything in the game is very interactable. Um, they can interact with each other in, in lots of different ways in very fundamental ways. And I want people to have a very rich experience where every level of the game, there's, there's just all kinds of stuff going on that they can kind of explore. And I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, and I'm not as, as interested, uh, you know, in just sort of like, I want to create something that feels large in a small space. I think that's something that's just very important to me because if it just, the experience feels very rich, I think in that sense. Yeah. What was, what was your process with, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that lends itself a lot to like creating this sense of discovery where you have like speedrunners who will go through a game like Spelunky and be like, if I blow this block up over here, it does this later on. It makes this run easier and perfect. And then you have just like people like me, like, if I carry the eggplant to the end, it does what now? Where you just discover these weird things throughout what you thought was a small game. And it's actually like this more robust system. Um, when you're designing something that's compact, but has all this depth to it, how much does like player feedback and community back and forth come into your process? Um, I kind of let it in sort of at the right times in development, because for me, it's important that I have that, you know, quote unquote alone time to think about the game myself, think about what's interesting about the game for me personally um, before letting people in or, you know, like I want to let that, player feedback kind kind of come in yeah like after I've I've had that time because mm-hmm. you know I think for players at least you know for the games that I'm excited about playing also uh you know I'm not when I'm playing somebody else's game what I'm interested in is playing their game you know what I want to find out what's interesting to them as a person and as a designer and I want to kind of be let into that world and and yeah, and sort of feel what they're feeling, and and feel what their what what their vision is, mm-hmm. and so um, I think player feedback is important ultimately, and you know they the players are your are your audience, and and you do want to cater to them, but I think in catering to them, for me, I I'm I'm reaching out I, most to players that I think want. Um, want to see what I, you know, what I'm interested in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, playing something that they already know that they want, 
you know mm-hmm. i think those i think the games that have excited me most are the ones where i i felt like afterwards i didn't know i wanted this right mm-hmm. and if i if i as a player was just there sitting next to the designer the entire time like telling them i want this i want this i want this then i might not have had that experience in the end mm-hmm. You, you've said that you want to make games that facilitate player expression. Um, is that kind of what you're talking about here or is that something else? I think that's true too, because I think when you are playing a game, um, like I want, you know, we, we've talked about exploration a lot. I want players to feel like they're exploring something when they play my games. And I think it's hard to, you know, like you're not really exploring. I think if you are, if you're just doing something that you've already done a million times that you know you want, like that's not really like exploration. That's that's just enjoying something that you like, which there's nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. either. But, you know, for the types of uh, games that I want to make and the experiences I want to make, I would like people to really explore. And I think in that exploration, you can be very, you can be very creative. And I think having these dense, having a dense game also contributes to an, an atmosphere where people feel like they can be very creative because there's so much going on sort of that they all, you know, all wants that they can, they can decide to play with. And, and roguelikes in particular are a great genre to facilitate creativity and exploration. And that was something that I was very drawn to with traditional roguelikes, even though they're turn-based, there's so much creativity in, in, what you can do in any given scenario. There are like, you know, many different ways to tackle mm-hmm. a, a given problem in roguelikes, you know, and you, you kind of get used to that feeling of going into your inventory when you're, when you come across a, a situation that feels impossible or like, you know, this is, I, I'm in a, a near death situation and I basically have one move I can make to save myself. And I think people who play traditional roguelikes are used to just going through their entire inventory and trying to puzzle it out a bit. And I wanted to give people that kind of feeling in a game that was just easier to approach because it's, it's a real time platformer and that's a genre that everybody's, you know, very familiar with. Yeah. What you described just now, I'm thinking of loop hero all the time now. (laughs) And like, it's like pause planning mode. And then it's like, okay, am I equipped properly to take on these uh, rat wolves type situations? I love that. Yeah. And that's a really cool game that you can tell has, you know, it's taking inspiration from a lot of different places. And it's just, uh, just another step in, you know, in roguelikes that just shows you how, how Mm. flexible yeah. It is as a framework. It's interesting how you frame that just there, like going through the inventory, but like with a kind of more modern, like roguelikes and roguelike rogue lights, it's like your, your, your knowledge is kind of that inventory you're shuffling through and you get, you keep collecting more. And that's like where you go to solve these situational puzzles that come up. But it's just, it's a cool video games are cool. That's all. That's where I'm going. <laughs> Yeah, I um we've got like a minute and twenty seconds. I'd I'd like to um maybe squeeze in a, another uh another question from our listeners. Um, Derek, did you have uh did you ever face a case where you had to kill the mechanic that you really like in the game because playtesters don't get it? Do you have any advice to address this early in development? Is that something you can answer? Um. I don't, there's not a, 
me- specific mechanic that comes to mind right off the top of my head. Um, but, you know, I think it depends on the game and I think it depends on how kind of important and core to the, to the game that mechanic is, you know, whether you want to remove it or not. Um, I definitely do not take players not understanding a mechanic just that that in and of itself is not a reason to remove something for me it depends on you know the kinds of interesting scenarios that that mechanic creates and sort of whether it's worth it for for players to go through the the step of trying to figure it out personally i like i like having things that are a bit challenging to figure out and you know i think for my games i'm not you know, I'm not always trying to make the player feel good all the time. I do want them to feel good eventually and at points in the game, but more than anything else, I want them to just have an experience that's interesting that they will think about afterwards. And, uh, you know, I'm not there to, I'm, I'm genuinely not there to, to punish people at all. I just, I want, I just know that in order to get to a place where players, I think, feel very good and where they leave the game feeling like they have learned something that you know they have they may have to feel uncomfortable and struggle with it for a while they may have to be in the might in the right mindset you know like Spelunky might not be a game for you at this particular time in in your life but you know the hope is that at some point you will find a time where it's something that that I think is interesting and, and adds something to your life that's uh, a great note to wrap things up on. Yeah, Incredible. that was perfect. Did you plan that, Derek? Yeah, no, that, that <laughs> absolutely. Okay, so like we we are totally out of time. Thank you, everybody in chat who talked to us. Thank you, Derek, so much. Like really insightful. Loved having you on. Should probably have you back on again sometime because this was so much fun. Um, so uh, catch more GDC podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, please rate us well. Give us uh, the old five star treatment. Um, so thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.